Would you open your Bibles to the end of uh, Hebrews 4? We're going to look at the last few verses in Hebrews 4 and the first few in uh, Hebrews 5. While you're turning there, uh, I forgot to mention this uh, special discipleship class um, where in your, in your bulletin there's an insert about multiplying home groups, and one of the things we're endeavoring to do is have a dozen home groups this fall. Uh, we have about a half a dozen right now. And so that means we, we, we want to multiply our home groups, uh, and all the home groups are going to be studying uh, a study guide that I'm putting together about um, multiplication and, and God's kingdom plan for us as individuals and congregations and for, uh, for congregations of congregations. Multiply, multiplication applies personally and corporately and even at the presbytery level and on missions and so on. So uh, we're going to study that this fall, and we need your help. Uh, we need folks to host home groups and folks to, to just uh, walk other uh, brothers and sisters through this study guide. And if that interests you, if you feel like, hey, maybe, maybe I could host, or maybe I could just kind of ask some questions in a study guide and facilitate some conversation, Kyle's going to be gathering um, everybody together next Sunday for just an interest meeting in the fellowship hall uh, actually, that's after the second service, um, not during Sunday school, my, my mistake. Um, so just wanted you to, to know about that. Um, yeah, so, so we're in the end of, of Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Um, this is you know, the author's continuing uh, conversation about the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is greater, and how he gives us a greater grace than even uh, the priesthood could. So let's stand in honor of God's word, I'm going to start in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. We pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for uh, the truth about um, our need for a priest, uh, our need for, uh, indeed, a, a sinless, perfect, compassionate priest. And thank you, Jesus, for standing uh, before the Lord on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And um, we're going to talk this morning as we look at these verses about a great high priest. We're going to talk about the sympathetic uh, high priest and how God is calling all of us to be a kingdom of priests under our high priest. So let's, let's talk about Jesus, our, our great high priest who has who has passed through the heavens there that you see in verse 14. We have this great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And so <clears throat> we're being called to hold fast 
to our confession of him. He is our high priest. We need a high priest. And Jesus is the the priest who provides atonement for our sins, uh, who intercedes for us, uh, who is our representative, our righteous representative in heaven. And to be uh, mindful of kind of the the, the church calendar, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves um, looking at verse 14, since it's really talking about the ascension. uh, And we're in that period right now in between Easter uh, and when we celebrate Easter, and then there's uh, the, the biblical account of about, about 40 days where Jesus was appearing to, to the disciples, and he was uh, revealing himself uh, to all kinds of people uh, in different occasions, different episodes, proving uh, the reality of his resurrection. And then 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends uh, and passes through the heavens to be seated at the right hand of the Father, right? So, so yeah, Ascension Sunday isn't until May 18th. That's sort of 40 days since Easter. But, but anyway, here we have this, this passage before us, and it's good for us to look at the reality of Jesus ascending into heaven. Because we were sort of looking at this last week, right? It's significant for us to remember that the incarnation wasn't just the sort of passing thing or, or, or a temporary condition for the second person of the Trinity, for God the Son. Um, he, didn't, he didn't put away his humanity uh, after the resurrection. He didn't toss it aside like, like dirty overalls after a hard day's work, you know, um, and, and, and move on to sort of something better or whatever. No, his humanity is something that he has preserved. And, and, and so last week we were talking about that catechism question that says, you know, why is it significant that Jesus ascends into heaven? Well, because that means that we have our own flesh in heaven. We, we have a, a human being who, who's gone into heaven, right? So just as surely as God came down from heaven to earth to be with us. We, we will join the, the man who, who went from earth to heaven in our own flesh. Uh, and so that's what's so beautiful about the ascension, is that he's the deposit, he's the guarantee, he's the proof that this is real, this, that there is right now a human being in heaven and, and he is our head and we are his body. And if we're connected to him by faith in him, by being united to him through you know, love and through uh, faith, then, then we're going to be with him. He's gone before to prepare you know, a place for us, right? That we may be with him where he is, um, was how he prayed uh, that night of his, uh, when he was with his disciples at the Last Supper. So, so yeah, um, Ascension Sunday isn't for a couple weeks, but it's still good to, to remember. We have our own flesh in heaven. He passed through the heavens into the presence of God as our great high priest, our representative. But he, he didn't just pass through the heavens. Before he passed through the heavens, he passed through something else. He passed through trials, and he, and he passed through uh, suffering. He passed through temptations. Um, 
you know, one of the commentators I've been following through this series, his name is Philip Hughes, and, and he was writing that thus uh, Christ's humanity was, was not a pretense or, or a masquerade, uh, and the reality of the temptations that he endured follows from the reality of the human nature that he assumed. So, you know, we have our, our own flesh in heaven. It's a real human body. Jesus was fully human as much as he was fully God. And so his humanity wasn't, you know, just a costume. It wasn't pretend. It was real. And that meant that the, the suffering that he underwent was real. And the trials that he underwent were real. The temptations that he underwent were, were real. Verse 15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, right? Um, let me give you a little bit of, of context for, for when the Bible describes temptation, uh, when it uses the so when you're reading, in, uh, especially in the New Testament, you're reading about trials, uh, when you're reading about temptations, this is the same uh, original word, but the context will give us a clue whether this is a temptation uh, from Satan that's designed to, to destroy our faith, to, 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 to tempt us to, to let go of the confession that 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 Hebrews is telling us, hold fast uh, to, to our confession, right? Hold fast to the confession that Jesus is Lord. He is our Savior. Hold fast to that. And temptations come along in order to loosen our grip from that, to destroy our faith. But trials come from God, and those are designed to develop our faith, to strengthen our grip, uh, to strengthen that muscle. Uh, to, to build spiritual muscle, to give us stamina, to prove the, the genuineness of our confession. Jesus really is my Savior. He really is my Lord. He really is my, my foundation. He really is my bedrock. And, you know, this church thing, this Christian thing isn't, isn't a charade. You know, it's, it's not a, a pretend. Um, it's, it's reality for me. So, um, Philip Hughes, again, says that temptation itself is, is actually neutral, right? Because those word, that, that word can be translated temptation or trial, in and of itself, it's a neutral thing. It sort of depends on how it's being used. So to be tempted indicates neither virtue nor sinfulness. The person who's being tempted, you know, just because they're being tempted doesn't have anything to say about their character, for the, the proper connotation of temptation is testing or proving, and virtue is in the resistance and overcoming of temptation, whereas sin is in yielding and capitulation. So if we, if we, if we buckle under it, then, then that becomes you know, the temptation. If we hold fast under it, that's a trial. All right, um, Isaiah talks about the... Uh, the one who's going to come, who's going to redeem Israel, who's going to be the suffering servant. It's a picture of Jesus. Who's going to pass through uh, the trials, who's going to endure suffering. 
And, uh, and I think a lot of you are familiar with these words. If you're new to the church or new to the Bible, uh, these, these words I'm about to read in Isaiah are historically just so comforting uh, to God's people. So, so listen to what God says to his prophet. Now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you're mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And we hear those words and we take comfort, right? Good, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to be consumed. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be overwhelmed, even though I pass through the waters, even though I pass through, through the rivers, through fire, etc. Well, that that condition doesn't just describe us as disciples. It, it did, did, don't don't miss what what Isaiah said in verse two here in chapter forty three. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He says, I will be with you. Not, not, just, not just to provide comfort, not just to provide you know, strength and fortitude to kind of keep on trudging along, but, but it's deeper than that. Because through Jesus, we realize he's not just there to say, you know, pat us on the back and say, hey, you can do this. You know, keep, keep it up. You're doing great. I mean, that's nice to know too. But now when he says, I will be with you, he means I'm going to suffer with you too. And I'm going to pass through the waters with you. And I'm going to pass through the rivers with you. And I'm going to pass through the fire with you. And I'm going to endure these trials, these temptations with you, alongside you, as one of you. As a fully human Savior. Fully God, fully man, God and man. Uh, there's a bishop in France in the 12th century, you know, going back centuries um, to, to our, 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 what our fathers, what our mothers, you know, how they walked faithfully. And, and here's what Peter Lombard uh, said about Jesus as our, as our sympathetic priest who's, who's passed not only through the heavens, but, but through our trials and temptations. He said that a man who has had no experience of affliction and who has not endured Everything in his own senses cannot possibly know the affliction of the afflicted. But Christ knows it. Not just because as God he knows all things, right? Not just because he's omniscient. Just not just head knowledge. But because as a man he has endured the same things as we endure. Experientially, right? In the flesh. So this is... This is a picture of what it means uh, for Jesus to be our sympathetic high priest, passing through the heavens to, to, to be our representative before God in heaven, but, but passing through the trials to, to be our sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in every respect uh, as we are, yet without sin. So he's our, our great high priest and he's our sympathetic high priest. And this is where you start kind of running into some questions if you're thinking critically about what we're reading, and I hope you are, I hope every time you open this book, you're putting your brain into fourth gear and not just going, oh, well, this is what we're all supposed to kind of, 
you know, say and recite and believe as a mantra. No, think critically about what God's revealing to us. Always with, within an authority over us, but, but use your brain. Okay, so, so think with me. Jesus is sinless, right? And he's, he's undergoing every, you know, um, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so this ought to raise some questions for us if, if we're really engaged we ought to be asking ourselves, well, how exactly was Jesus tempted in every respect as we are? I mean, how could he? For, for a number of reasons, like chronological reasons and circumstantial reasons and, and, and ontological reasons to throw out a, you know, let's talk about big words. Um, in other words, like, so what did the temptations and trials of Jesus have in common with our temptations and trials, right? So, so chronologically, we just know there are some temptations that Jesus never experienced, right? He was never experienced to look at online porn. He, he was never tempted by that. Chronologically, that was impossible for him to look at online porn. But he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Wasn't he tempted? Wasn't it a trial for him to, to look at people as objects of his gratification instead of objects of his love? Sure. And that's what's at the root of any way that, that, that we are tempted to objectify people, to treat them as tools, you know, to, to give us what we want instead of holy beings, holy image bearers, of our mutual uh, creator, right? So, so yeah, there wasn't online stuff back then, but there was still the, the core of that temptation that, that Jesus experienced as well. Jesus wasn't, uh, so again, chronologically, Jesus wasn't tempted to, to overdose on oxy or fentanyl. But wasn't Jesus tempted to find a quick fix to look for just a release from the, from the pain and from the pressure. Well, wasn't that a temptation for him? He was under constant pressure. And so there was just this trial of, of his experience of, of, of the weight of, of being our Savior and having this mission to come and be the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Don't you think that there were maybe occasions where he was thinking, man, this is hard. I could use a, a, a release. Um, Furthermore, Jesus wasn't tempted uh, to, uh, to, to, to lash out at his opponents, you know. Oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that on Twitter, you know, and, and, and you know, say something snarky or on Facebook, oh, you won't believe what so-and-so did and what I experienced. Like, he's not going to do that, but certainly Jesus was tempted to lash out at his opponents in other ways. So he, he, he understands the core of the temptation, even though the means of the temptation can shift, can change. So you're reading this and you're going, well, how could he be tempted in every respect, every respect as we are yet without sin when he wasn't, they didn't have computers back then. He doesn't know what it's like for, you know, what I'm struggling with. Yes, he does. He understands our addictions. He understands our struggles. He understands our temptations. What about like circumstantially? There are some things you kind of go, well, well, how could he understand this temptation? Like for instance, he wasn't tempted um, to, to be bitter toward his ex. 
He was never married. He was celibate, you know, a single man. But some of you who have had very, very painful breakups, where you felt misused, even abused by your ex, and you, you wrestle with that bitterness, but at the same time, Jesus didn't have to have a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, to, to know the pain of betrayal. Gosh, more than, than any of us, he understands the pain of betrayal, the pain of un, unfaithfulness, right? You know, Jesus wasn't tempted to, here's sort of a more modern circumstance, Jesus wasn't tempted to identify as another gender. But for those who genuinely struggle with that kind of dysphoria, you have a Savior who is tempted to reject his identity as the Son of Man. Three times in the desert where Satan was coming after him, if you are the Son of God, you know, turn this bread into a stone. So, so coming at his identity, causing him to question that, and being tempted to lay that aside for a different identity. I'm trying to, to just help us see that, yeah, the circumstances can be different, like the, chrono the chronology can be different, the means can be different, but at the core, the temptations are very, very much the same. And so indeed, yes, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin, there's always going to be new temptations that we're going to face, you know, tomorrow Next year, five years from now, God, I, we can't even imagine the temptations the next generation is going to be subject to, what form those temptations might take, but you and I don't have to dig or scratch very deep at all to know what the core of those temptations are going to be. They're, they're common to all of us. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. And, and he will always provide a way out so that we can stand uh, firm uh, and able, be able to endure it. So don't, you know, maybe focus on all the ways Jesus may or may not have been tempted. We, we need to focus on why he was being tempted? What, what's at the core of those temptations? And at the core is the same thing that we, same reason why you and I are being tempted, which is to let go of our confession. To give up and to say no to Jesus. To say, no, the gospel doesn't work for me anymore. I'm not going to walk this path of discipleship anymore. It's not worth it. It's too hard. I give up. And that's why Jesus is being tempted, and that's why you and I are being tempted. We're told that he was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And that, that should make you kind of go, well, how does that work too? If, again, if you're, if you're being careful, if you're being analytical, if you're thinking critically, which are good things. God's given us minds, and we need to engage them as we read his word. Um, I want you to listen uh, just for a, a brief second to James chapter one and, and listen to how temptation works and then kind of go, well, how does this work with Jesus? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's the same word as temptation, right? Just a different context. This guy is blessed because he's standing firm. 
Um, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, same word, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's, that's this you know, sort of chronology and anatomy of, of how temptation turns into sin and how sin turns into death. So if you were listening with me to James chapter 1, maybe you've got a couple of questions here. So if it says that God cannot be tempted with evil. That's what James chapter 1 says. God cannot be tempted with evil, and yet we know that Jesus is is God the Son, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. So if God cannot be tempted with evil, and Jesus is God incarnate, then how can Jesus be tempted with evil? You follow me? Good question. Another one. Well, how then could Jesus, the, the perfect and sinless one, um, in, in verse 14 in James 1, it says, each person's tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. How, how, how could Jesus be lured and, and enticed by a desire that's sinless if his desires are, I'm sorry, by a desire that's sinful if his desires are sinless? Like he has a pure heart. Our hearts, you know, are, are corrupted by sin. His heart is not corrupted by sin. So we have sinful desires, and those desires give birth, you know, to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But Jesus doesn't have a sinful heart. He has a pure heart. So how is he tempted? How can he be lured into sin? So these are good questions. And I don't have necessarily a good answer for you. (laughs) I'm just going to be honest with you. But I'm going to tell you there's a mystery here. The same mystery that, that, that we embrace when we say that we believe that God is one God and three persons and that God is on high and that God came down in this person of the Son and the whole incarnation itself is a mystery. How can God be fully God and fully man at the same time without partiality and without division and all these things um, that, uh, that Mike Kelly's going to teach you about in the discipleship class this summer on the Trinity? Um, how, how are all these things true? And we go, well, we, we don't exactly have the the ability with our finite minds to map it all out and there's there's the application of faith it's it's not just reckless faith it's genuine faith based on real revelation of a real god or who came to us in a real person of jesus christ and so in that mindset recognizing there's mystery here we we want to confess that we know his temptations were real we see the evidence for that in the Gospels, and we also know that he was sinless. The temptations are not imaginary, but he was sinless through them. So, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw my hat in with Simon Kistemacher, one of the scholars and commentators who, uh, you know, has a lot of good things to say. He just says, look, we admit that it is difficult to understand how the Son of God, who could not sin, was tempted just as we are. From our limited perspective, we are unable to explain the difficulty inherent 
in the biblical teaching about Jesus' sinlessness and temptation. So I want to throw that out there in full transparency, right? We're not going to pretend like, oh, well, this is easy. It's not easy. But you don't want to say that, you know, have such a, a commitment to the sinlessness of Jesus that you say, well, he wasn't tempted. Because then you don't have a sympathetic high priest anymore. But you don't want such a sympathetic high priest that he's just wallowing in the muck like we are and, and you know, and sinning because then you don't have a great high priest anymore. He's both. I think there's a good way to, to, to see another biblical example of this. I want to um, direct your attention to the front of your bulletin. Uh, there's this painting, uh, and I want to show you the slide because the color is beautiful. Um, George Latour painted this in the 17th century, and, and this is a depiction of uh, Job and his wife. If you don't know the story of Job, Job is this righteous man. He's held up as an example of faithfulness. And um, in a literal sense, like all hell breaks loose. And he loses his money. Uh, He loses his property. He loses his family. And yet, he maintains his integrity. He maintains his faithfulness. This is the satanic attack against him. To, to tear him down and to destroy his faith, to, to, to tempt him to, to let go instead of to hold fast. And what I love in this painting, if we can, is there any way to get the lights down? I don't know. It's okay, you can see. Um, what's the first thing maybe you notice in this depiction of Job and his wife? She's, she's enormous. <laughs> she, she's just kind of looming over him. And he's just sitting there like a child, looking up, you know, this posture of weakness. Um, She's very well-dressed. She seems to be doing all right. Job, of course, uh, you can't see it very carefully, but there's a, a broken piece of pottery uh, beneath his, uh, his legs. And uh, he's, as, as the book of Job tells us, he's taking these broken pieces of pottery and scraping the sores you know, from his skin after he contracted this disease that came from this, this uh, terrible uh, temptation. I just think this composition is brilliant because like all temptation, it, it looms large over us. She's, she's reasoning with him. She's not yelling at him. She's not screaming at him. The, 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 the uh, expression on her face is actually quite calm and rational and that's where it gets scary. Are you still holding on to your integrity? You still believe God's a good God? Look at how much you're suffering. Why would a good God allow one of his faithful servants to suffer so much? Where's the light source coming from in this painting? Who's illuminated? Who's the one bearing the light? She is, right? It's the world's wisdom. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Why aren't you cursing God? Why don't you just give up and die? 
And that's how temptation feels. Job's response was, what are we going to do? Just receive only good from God and not hardship, not trials? The Lord gave and the Lord takes away and blessed be in the name of the Lord. It's a good picture of Jesus under, under trial, under temptation, looming large over him. This, this, this satanic ploy that's just after him. It's an unrelenting campaign to divert Jesus away from his mission, his entire uh, you know, three-year earthly ministry. It started in the desert. Uh, it, it continued throughout his public ministry, and it reached its apex on the cross. And so um, we don't have time to go through it all, but you can turn to Matthew 4 or Luke 4 and read about Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness and tempting Jesus uh, through the offers of, of comfort, uh, the offers of security, the offer of authority, and, and that was very appealing to Jesus. He can have it without suffering. And, and then he continues on, Jesus is faithful. And then Peter declares that Jesus should never suffer. No, may it never be. And, and, and Jesus has to say, uh, get behind me, Satan. You, you do not know the, the plans of God. This is, this, is, this is worldly wisdom. And then Pilate urges Jesus to defend himself, right? And Jesus knows that he could call upon legions, thousands of angels to come to his defense. But no, he chooses suffering instead. And then Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he's under this terrible temptation to put that cup of wrath aside, right? And then Jesus is on the cross, and the satanic voices keep coming. He saved himself, let's see if he can save, he saved others, let's see if he can save himself, right? So it's just unrelenting all through his ministry, this looming large temptation to let go, to abandon the mission. Instead of cursing God and dying like Job's wife urged her husband to do. Instead of cursing his God and expiring on the cross, what does Jesus say? One of his last words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is, there is so much packed into that statement, um, but I just want to make this simple observation. Jesus never abandoned his relationship with God. Even at the end, he was my God, my God, even though God had forsaken him. Truly, God had forsaken him. Why? Well, because he was our, our sin bearer, right? God has to forsake sin. Sin cannot abide in the presence, the holy presence of God, because sin pollutes what is holy. So it's, it's like a, two, two magnets, right, that are opposing one another. They, they can't be together. Sin and holiness cannot coexist. So God had to forsake the sin-bearing substitute, our sin-bearing sacrifice in order for us to not be expelled, for order for us to not be forsaken, in order for us to have access 
to God and to, to pass through the heavens, to, to go into his presence. Jesus had to take our sin away, and that's why he was forsaken. But even in that moment, he's still praying, my God, my God. And he never sinned, even though his whole life had temptation looming over it, saying, curse God and die. Jesus is our, our high priest. He's our, our sympathetic high priest who, who knows acutely, who knows more than any of us the weight, the power, the force of that temptation to give up. I'm, I'm, I'm through. I'm done. I, I can't get out of bed again. I can't keep walking this path. He knows that feeling. And he held fast. This makes him our great and sympathetic high priest and in a remarkable way calls us to be part of his kingdom of priests. Um, Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to this throne of grace where we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I, um, I mentioned that truck a couple of weeks ago. Um, I saw a cool license plate this week. I just, I, I, I look at things. I don't know. Um, write this down and see if you can decode this, this license plate. Um, NVR, N-D-E. NVR space N. D-E. I'm looking at that license plate, NVR. You know what NVR means, right? Never. I'm looking at, right, so never N-D-E. Never N-D-E. Never, never nude? <laughs> like, that's honestly, that's the first thing that came to my mind. How do you shower? And they're like, oh, not never. Never N-D-E. Never needy. This guy's driving around in his big truck. There's a truck, again, never needy. I'm not one of those people that's weak. I'm not one of those people that has needs. I'm not one of those people who needs grace. And can I tell you how lost that man is? Assuming it's a guy. The only way we can be found, the only way we can be whole is to Go to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Every single person in this room, every single one of us has some temptation some trial looming large over you right now. It's our common human condition. It doesn't make you, you know, some kind of second-class person. It doesn't make you an unimportant person. It doesn't make you a less valuable person. It makes you a human person who shares our common sinful experience. You have great temptation. You have great trial just like I do. And the world holds out its light. 
curse God and die. Why are you doing this? Why are you, why, why are you fighting this? Just acquiesce. Just give in. And the light of the world is saying, no, come to me. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to bear your burden. I know, I'm, I know, I don't know exactly what it feels like. I know more than what it feels like. Jesus was tempted in every way we are to turn away from God. And the gospel is the, the good news that Jesus was faithful as our high priest. And when we're united to him, his faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. His obedience becomes our obedience, right? That's the beauty of being united to Jesus. And we're called to hold fast to our confession. He is my high priest. Is that your confession? He's my savior. He's my Lord. Is that your confession? And on good days, we hold fast to Jesus and we follow him in faithfulness because we know that's what he wants. And that's how the world sees his goodness and his beauty. And so we want to see, we want to live lives that are good and beautiful. And we have good days and then we have bad days. We have good days when we hold fast to our confession and we have bad days when we, when, when we let go. When we, when we forget when the light of the, the, the world's light looks brighter to us than the light of the world and, 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 and we, we forget ourselves. Unless we hold fast to our confession again and we turn to Jesus not in obedience but in repentance where he's still our great high priest who takes away our sins and renews us and forgives us and gives us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Our time of need when we're under trial and our time of need when we've given in to temptation. He renews us. Do you know how you act? You know the only way to fail? This is, a, this is the win-win of the gospel. You can win on a good day and you can win on a bad day, but do you know how you lose? As you stop going back to him. As you stop following him. As you stop confessing him where he's no longer your savior and Lord, where you're no longer a Christian, when you walk away and say, I forget it. Let us hold fast to our confession. He is our savior. He is our high priest. He's our sympathetic high priest. And he's calling us to be priests to our neighbors and to the nations and to show them the grace and the mercy of our sympathetic high priest. Verse, uh, those next verses in chapter five, just real quickly, he just says that every high priest is chosen from among men. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, offering gifts and sacrifices. And, and, and he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. There's two reasons why God is enlisting us to be priests, to show the world mercy and grace. First, because he showed us mercy and grace. And second, because we are beset with weaknesses. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, says Peter. We're, we're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, so we're supposed to be dealing gently with the ignorant and wayward, right? As priests under our high priest, we're to go out and be ministers to the ignorant and the wayward. Who are the ignorant and the wayward? Well, that's obvious, right? Pretty much anybody who annoys you or you get angry at. <laughs> They're obviously ignorant. They're obviously wayward or they'd be doing life the way that I'm doing life. Well, the kid who, <laughs> who 
who can't aim in the bathroom, uh, the dog who keeps chewing on the spatula, the coworker who doesn't know any boundaries, the roommate who just, you know, is a slob, the, the teammate who doesn't pull their weight, the, the classmate who's cheating off your, your stuff, the workplace person who just doesn't stop talking. Like, it just, it, it never stops. There's always the ignorant and the wayward around you, right? But let's be careful here. The things that irritate us is, are, are not the inerrant measure of what is wayward and ignorant in others. Chances are it's happening on both sides of the equation. We're ignorant and wayward too. And that's why we are called as priests to point to our high priests and deal with those around us who are ignorant and wayward because we're weak too. We are ignorant and wayward. So our, our irritation meter you know, needs to be recalibrated from time to time. But there really are ignorant and wayward people around us, right? Do we ignore them? Do we shame them? Do we complain about them? Or do we show them Jesus, our high priest, and deal gently with them? Do we pray for them and love them the way that Jesus loves us? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your uh, priestly ministry to us. We would be lost, dead, and in darkness without a high priest who has gone through the heavens to stand in our place, without a high priest who has come to earth to sympathize with our weaknesses, to endure temptation and to stand firm under it, to hold fast so that we uh, could hold fast too. Lord, thank you for forgiving our sins, for, for calling us to, to repent again and again and to keep coming to you to find mercy and grace in our ongoing neediness. And Lord, to be sent out as uh, priests to our neighbors and to the nations to show them how good you are, how merciful you are, how gracious you are, how loving you are. In Jesus' name, amen.